0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Hairball Audio. For nearly a decade, Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself, without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure: Legendary microphones, cutting-edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to Shure.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy.
1: Welcome to the URM podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Diamond God, Meshuggah, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multitracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multitracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. I love the episodes where I get to talk to non-audio people who are doing really cool things in the music industry because it just brings a different perspective. And I like to give you guys, I guess, enlightenment from the other side of the glass or the fence as well. I want you to know what the people that are going to be hiring you think about this. You know, For those of you that are trying to be professional producers or professional musicians, I want you to hear from the people that are going to be the gatekeepers in your careers. So on today, I've got Mr. Shandan Horan, someone that I've known at an arm's length for like 10 years now. Uh, this is the first time I've gotten to really talk to him, and we've almost talked many, many times. We run in the same circles. We just keep missing each other, and this guy's impressive. He's done a lot of stuff. I mean, dating back to before he was in the music industry, he worked in corporate marketing in Chicago for Barack Obama as well as McDonald's, and he worked at Century Media for about five years on releases for In This Moment, arch enemy, suicide silence. Then he became the president of Artie recordings for like 5 years, worked releases for slaves, attila, i wrestled a bear once, was the president of outer loop records for 1 year, worked on releases for the agony scene and lorna shore. He's currently the president of shadowborn group and has directed music videos for john mellcamp, devil driver, exodus and buck cherry among others. And he's currently shooting and looking for 10 bands to feature on his TV show, Musician Rescue, which the trailer for that is in the show notes. So without further ado, I give you Shandan Horan. Shandan Horan, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you doing today? Doing good. How are you doing? Not bad, man, and uh, doing well, and I just wanted to thank you for allowing Slaves to come on Nail the Mix, and I'm stoked to have you on. We've been talking online for years now, and I feel like we keep on, like, almost doing this, and, like, we've almost worked together a bunch of times. Like, we just keep on, like, kind of, like, driving by each other, but finally something worked out, and uh, both Slaves on Nail the Mix and you on the podcast, so I'm stoked.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we have been talking for years and, you know, I feel like we just slightly miss each other. You know, I'll, I'll work at different labels and you'll work on projects just before my time or just after or something like that. So it's great to finally kind of catch up and, and just meet up for an actual project.
1: Yeah, is really, really cool. And I feel like the first time I heard of you was when you were still strictly a videographer. And um I was I believe that I was being managed by Blasco back when I was doing production. And I think that you started getting managed by mercenary management at the same time.
2: Um does that sound accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. So, um I mean the funny thing is like videography has always been something that I've I've really loved to do kind of within my my career path. It's it's interesting where like, you know, you'll work in the industry, you know, let's say you'll need a video of some sort. And then, you know, you can't rely on a specific person for it. So you kind of just teach yourself how to do it. You know, that's what has happened essentially in my career is kind of that, you know, I went into college for marketing, was working, you know, strictly in like the business side of things. And then I just tended to be really good at that creative side. And uh, ever since then, it's just like video has always pulled me that direction. And then the music industry has pulled me a different one. So it's kind of funny to walk the middle ground as well.
1: So you were a business person first, and then you kind of started to do the art side
2: because people were letting you down and you
1: gravitated towards it anyways?
2: Absolutely. So yeah, I I went to college and uh, I I graduated with a uh, a degree in marketing. So essentially what I did was I moved to Chicago and I started working in in corporate marketing, which was really boring and crazy. Like, you know, some of the big stuff I worked on was for Barack Obama before he was president, you know, his. I've heard of him. Yeah, have you? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wasn't he in some band? Yeah, he he's in some death metal band.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought.
2: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I worked for him, you know, at, at this corporate marketing uh, big company in the sky, you know, the skyscraper, and, you know, we also did stuff for, like, McDonald's and all these huge companies. But, you know, the downside of that, and I'm, I'm not talking, you know, poorly on working for big clients like that but you know it's just very boring you know doing a very monotonous safe approach to everything you can't really get creative so you know video was always kind of that outlet where you know i could go and do my own thing like you know most recently i I shot that uh, music video for the band dead as a perfect example and i you know was like well what if i submerge you in water you know and just let me do it and they were like okay And that's kind of what
1: Obama wasn't done with getting submerged in water. Yeah, yeah,
2: you know, he's he's like, you know what? No fake blood, no submerging, no you know pyro towers. So weird. I know, right? It's just, I
1: mean, it's just odd, man. Death metal bands tend to like that kind of stuff, but so so that's interesting though to me that you found it boring because um, I remember there being so much energy, at least uh, in the media about that campaign and um, I know that at least with stuff like McDonald's it's high pressure like it might not be creatively interesting but it's high pressure but it's so I find it interesting that um, and also cool that you know yourself well enough and even at a young age you knew yourself well enough to know that you had to be creatively inspired Uh, it didn't matter if it's high level if you're not creatively inspired it's not going to work out for you yeah because you really can't get more high level than that
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Working with Barack Obama was actually really cool. Like, you know, I I, nobody had any idea that he was going to be president, you know, back then because there's just so many political candidates. But, you know, that was a fun campaign. But the big thing, and I'll I'll be honest with you, that made me snap kind of in that world was, you know, McDonald's, you know, perfect example is we're building this whole national wide or international campaign for these guys. And like, you you know, they're saying, you know, what is it? uh, I'm loving it.
1: Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah.
2: You know? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially what we had to do is this campaign, you know, I'd come in every day and we were working on that in like hundreds of languages. So I learned I'm loving it in like every country across the world. Thankfully I've forgotten that at this point in time, but, you know, just doing that day in and day out, I was just creatively exhausted and knew that I I didn't want to do that, even though it might pay better. I, I felt like, you know, music industry and doing stuff that I kind of get to you know, create was the way I wanted to go. And that's how I ended up on this crazy path I've taken.
1: Okay. So since you've worked in the real world, I guess, and now in the music industry, I guess, have you noticed this? Like, maybe it's better to just ask you if you've noticed this. There's a huge lack of professionalism in the business of music. And I think that I'm wondering if moving from like, the real world into the music industry, if that frustrated you at all, or if you saw that as an opportunity since you actually knew what you were doing?
2: Well, I mean, it it definitely was different than other fields. I mean, obviously coming from corporate marketing, you know, where everything's very, you know, clean and, and, cut you know into a world where you know it's kind of the wild wild west where certain you know let's just you know be straight to the point is you know certain people wouldn't work with other people because of a you know problem or an ego issue other people had you know problems um With certain labels, you know, it it became almost like going from a very strict corporate setting to almost like a high school situation. And I'm not talking, you know, poorly on on music industry, you know, people that I work with, you know, daily. That's just the way it is. Uh, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Certain bands don't mesh with other bands because one of them got drunk and stole their girlfriend. Like, There's just this web of of just uh, complexities that shouldn't be on a business setting, but they actually are. So that's that's kind of the, the narrow straits that we have to navigate in this industry. And I had to learn that really fast. I think
1: that that's why they say that music is the most relationship-driven industry in the world. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people say every... Really, every industry is relationship driven, and I know that's true. Like in every industry, you need to network, and every industry, you need to be friends. And obviously, people who have more friends will get further. That's just true of humanity. But there's something different about music where that social drama, like you, you need to know how to navigate it a lot more than I think in other industries. It plays. A much bigger factor. People in music will oftentimes fuck themselves over financially or fuck over a project financially or business wise over those personal issues. And so it's like they'll put the personal ahead of the business. And it's important to understand that and it's important to know when that's gonna happen. It's gonna it's important to know how to deal with that.
2: Oh yeah, and I mean I mean it, it, it would be easier you know, in a corporate world or something like that, because you can kind of navigate what your profit margins are going to look like in a quarterly basis. But in our world too, it's also, you know, let's say two people have an issue and start talking, you know, poorly about each other based on some other relationship that went south, you know, uh, this new project that they're working on, you don't really have a formula to know if that's going to be successful or not. So, you know, if it fails, you know, that's, you know, obviously neither of their faults but if it it's successful then they they take the credit. So it's like the the weird situation is in the music industry we don't really know what is going to be successful or not. Some things that you know were huge success stories last year aren't and then some new bands that you think are going to be the next, you know, big thing just aren't, you know, that just doesn't happen. So for, you know, looping back to what we were talking about is, you know, some of the people that sabotage things, they don't really know what they're sabotaging and that makes it even more complex you know it, it kind of changes it from either a petty fight that didn't do damage to you know something that costs an album all of its success but there's no way to re- really prove that if that makes any sense
1: it's impossible to prove but let me just uh tell you that i do believe that what you're saying about nobody knows to be totally true because that i mean I know that from my days in a band, and I know it from my days as a producer, too. Like, you work on an album that you think is the sickest thing you've ever done, like, the band is on point, the songs are great, like, the team is ready, and just nobody cares. And then you work with another band that's like a glorified local band, and it sells 30,000 copies the first week. So, and it's hard, it's really hard to tell. And I can tell you just from doing Nail the Mix now for three years that... You know, we'll get like some cult band that hasn't put out a record in eight years, like Carnival from Australia, and it will do almost as well as Bring Me the Horizon did for us. Like it did fucking great. And, but then you'll have like, sometimes you'll have a chart topper and it'll, it's not gonna be crickets, but it's not gonna be even close to what that cult band did. And, like sometimes these obscure bands, for us at least, will just move the needle in ways that are just mind blowing. And the ones you would expect don't necessarily. And so, and I've, that's what I've, every different job I've had in the music industry has taught me that. And then even this one in education, which we kind of interface with the music industry, but we're doing our own things still. That's still true. You
2: never know. Well, it's even more complex. I mean, it's hard in this industry because there's so many variables, you know, and and normal businesses as well. They have variables, but it's a lot more, you know, stable on on our, our behalf, too. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, you could have a cult classic band, you know, like a a death metal band from way back that consistently sells a certain amount or, you know, increases or decreases, pretty stable. And that has a lot to do with the core fan base that they cultivated over time. I mean, a lot of stuff that you see, let's say, you know, on on a, you know, duality perspective of that is, you know, young a young band that's, you know, by the time their third album comes out, their fans are now, you know, starting families and they don't really care about music anymore. That was a phase of their life. It, it feels like, you know, specific bands can uh, depend on on their fan base, depending upon what that demographic is. I mean, you, you and me both know those death metal, you know, uh, black metal fans are diehard regardless if they're 18. Or 65.
1: Yeah, it doesn't die. And that's actually, it's funny. When we started Nail the Mix and URM, like we decided we were going to kind of focus on rock and metal because that's the world we come from. It's the world we know. We know how it works. And we, like, we know those things about it that, like, there's certain types of bands that they might not be the biggest band in the world, but they will be consistent and their fan base are diehard. Um, And It there's something there, and so at the beginning, and every once in a while, people would ask us, So, when are you guys going to move into like a real genre? You guys are so good at what you do, like, why don't you do it for like a real genre? And it's like, Look, just because that genre has a lot of purchasers doesn't mean that they necessarily have. A community of people who want to learn how to produce that style of music—one does not equal the other. It's not a one-to-one thing. Like uh, it's just because they sell records or uh, they get streamed a lot, does not mean that there's a group of kids or adults who want to learn how to produce that kind of stuff. It just doesn't mean that. It's not. There's no correlation there. Yeah. But in heavy music. Because of the way heavy music is created, and because of who the fans are, heavy music is kind of like, there are non-musician fans, but there's a huge part of the demographic that uh, that it's by musicians for musicians, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, you know, every once in a while you do get your bands that are, that cross over into the mainstream and who have... Non musician fans, but I would still say that that 's a big part of the market. It always has been, and I think it always will be and i 'm not sure that that exists in other genres, so we know this about metal and rock, and so thats that's our that 's what we go for, and we know it, and it works yeah. but uh it's it, I, it makes me think of something. I remember reading an interview with Glenn Danzig in like one thousand nine hundred and ninety four or something. He played some some huge show in Texas or something and brought like 15,000 people. And Whitney Houston had played there the week before and brought less people. And it just it just goes to show that, like, there's, you know, Whitney Houston would have outsold Danzig like crazy in terms of record sales and chart positions. But, like, when it comes to the fans actually showing up, like, you know, you never know <laughs> the heavy yeah. bands, heavy bands uh,
2: do a lot better than people realize. Oh, yeah. And it depends the markets, too. I mean, cer- certain things like that, like Whitney Houston will probably play major cities, you know, but they're not going to go and play, you know, uh Kayenta, Arizona, you know, that nobody's nobody really tours through. But a metal band, you know, might. And when they show up to these things, they kind of build a bigger grassroots fan base as well. You know, um, I feel like that's that's something that bands don't realize a lot of, too, is some of the best shows they'll actually play are small cities that people don't visit. And you have to think like over the course of, you know, let's say five, 10 years of, you know, a musician's touring career, you know, that amount of uh, fan base that they built up in these cities that other people might have passed on might be giving them an innovative edge in, let's say, a market like Texas or something like that.
1: Absolutely. So. That brings up a question I have for mm-hmm. you. So, creatively, you're on the videography side mm-hmm. of things. Were you ever a musician?
2: I was. Yeah. Yeah. I played uh, in, in tons of bands, nothing very notable back in the day, just primarily metal type stuff. Um, but that's how I got into it. I mean, it's kind of interesting, though, being that I, you know, did get into the business side of it, you know, with, let's say, the metaphor of corporate suit type people. I found out very quickly that the majority of the people I worked with the labels Hadn't actually been musicians, which is an intram- you know, interesting duality.
1: That's actually interesting to me because um, lots, you know, lots of the people that I've met over the years on the business side, the one for some reason I remember them typically having had a band at some point, uh, but them just not having, they just got pulled towards business for some reason. Yeah, um, it just worked out that way. But I tend to remember most of them having had a band or being like uh, like uh, Monty Conner, I've always said in an alternate universe would have been a producer. Um, like the way that he a is basically like an executive producer. And like it's sometimes I just wonder why he didn't just become a producer, um, but he didn't. Yeah. He became one of the most successful A&R guys of all mm-hmm. time. And in some ways, maybe that is You know, maybe that's what he was, uh, I mean, clearly it's what he was meant to do. But, like, maybe his skill for production or hearing things was best utilized as an A&R guy. But you can tell that if he had wanted to be a producer, uh, he could have been a producer easily. Like, he has that ear.
2: Absolutely. And I'm actually very glad that he didn't go that direction because, of all people, you know, he's uh, basically built the landscape for modern metal. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, so just just watching, I mean even even still to date, you know, they I see them as, you know, the primary metal label picking up artists that you know, are are, you know, the originals that people want to hear and I I feel like, you know, Nuclear Bl- Blast especially is, you know, kind of created that they've perpetuated what's good about metal and yep. brought up younger bands through this this kind of uh, machine that they they built
1: well the the thing that i think is really really cool about monty's uh nuclear blast uh i don't know if it's an imprint or what it technically is but monty's nuclear blast basically Mm -hmm. i think is fucking awesome because well since i know him from roadrunner he signed me on roadrunner so like i knew him back then I know that there were a lot of bands that he wanted to sign that he just couldn't. He just wasn't allowed to. Like there was, back in the days when he signed me, there was like this resurgence of brutality uh, that he just couldn't get the label behind. He just couldn't. He wanted to, but he couldn't. And um, so it was almost like a blessing in disguise that uh, when, you know, when they basically axed their entire staff or most of their staff. And he got to start this nuclear blast thing because, uh, he's been, you know, he's been signing a lot of legacy acts who deserve to be signed by a label that loves them. But he also has been really good about finding these young bands that are fucking cool. Uh, like thy art is murder, for instance, or like nails. They're not the youngest band, but like these bands that are just cool in their scenes that, uh, need I think that like they need to work with somebody like him who loves the music and is just lives for the music like they need people like that cultivating their careers, but he wasn't able to do it for the longest time. you yeah. know past a certain time period at Roadrunner, they no longer signed that type of band. Yeah. so I think that metal needs people like him to have the freedom to sign these more extreme bands and also keep the legacy bands alive. Yeah. It's a great thing he's doing.
2: I mean, I've been in that exact predicament many times where, you know, I, I get pushback on what artists I want to sign, you know, at, at whatever label I'm running at the time. And, you know, a lot of times you have to kind of put your, you know, stick your neck out if you see something that somebody else doesn't. And, you know, once that band is successful, then, you know, everybody kind of, you know, backs off and gives you a little more space. So I feel like he's done that in his career, definitely. And I also do think he understands, you know, the importance of bringing in younger bands because, you know, let's face it, a lot of these these metalheads that listen to legacy acts back in the day, you know, are getting old and have different hobbies and might not, you know, want to go out and see a concert if they're 50, 60 years old, you know, or buy, you know, CDs or any, anything like that. So, you know, the, the important thing for the generations is to build your hot bands. I mean, even when. I worked at century media records you know that was a big push for us you know was picking up stuff like suicide silence or winds of plague you know to to continue on Mm -hmm. a new generation of metalheads that might through proxy start buying some of the older catalog releases as well and it did work but it's just hard because developing a band from you know step one ground zero costs a lot more more money and takes a lot more time and by the end of investing all your money and time, it's not really a, a guaranteed success. It could flop like many artists do. Back
1: to, you know, back to what we said originally is you never, you never know. You just never know. Uh, You know, so wait, wait a second. When did you work at Century Media?
2: I worked there for about four or five years. I I did the, in this moment, Blood Record, Suicide Silence, um, like Black Throne, a couple others. So that era
1: 2009 through 2010 ish,
2: yeah, I would say about around there. How did we not cross paths?
1: That was like when my band got licensed to Century and we did two records, that was in right in that time period. We've almost crossed paths so many times,
2: that's what I'm saying. But it is difficult too, and in, in a label like that, I mean, Century's big thing was hey, we have a staff of like 150 people worldwide, you know? So it's like, you know, certain people you might talk to is like your Steve Joe, you know, who's a great guy mm-hmm. and a solid a and I'm sure he, he ran that. Or if, you know, you're a primary focus in Europe, you know, where they're like, hey, this band is going to be big in the European scene, you might not even cross paths in the U.S. label. So that's...
1: I think the only place that my band was a priority was on Steve Joe's Skype. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I would <laughs> blow him up. Oh, my <laughs> Yeah. You know, though, I used to come by the L.A. office a lot. Um, I made a lot of friends there, so it's just uh, I must have come on all the days that you weren't there.
2: Yeah, my I mean, my office was in the side, like, right in the hall where everybody had to walk past. So you probably walked past me and just didn't know.
1: That's so funny. It's funny how, uh, how that happens. Um, also, like, I remember back in that time period, there were some interns who came on who now have been working, like— Working in the industry or who, or at Century Media for like almost 10 years now. Oh, wow. Like uh, Ste- Stephanie Shoulders. Oh, for yeah, instance. yeah, totally. I met her back then when she was first starting, uh, and she stuck around for sure. Um, it's just, it's interesting. That's another thing that I think is, you know, just must be mentioned, which is that in music, just like you have no idea what's going to happen band-wise. You don't know who is going to actually stick it out. Like, you could never tell in advance who's yeah. going to stick it out, who's going to have, like, the the grit to, you know, take all the bumps in the road. And so this is why I think that people say try to be cool with everyone if you can because you never know. Like, someone who you might... And I, I'm not saying that this is how I felt about Stephanie, actually. I always thought she was cool. But... uh You may not expect someone to be able to have the, you know, the grit to stick it out and then 10 years go by and they're running shit. Yeah. It's impressive. It should always give people a chance.
2: I've I've had situations and I'm not going to name band names, (laughs) but like I've had situations where, you know, when I, I was, you know, before I. I started my role in the music industry. You know, I would play in bands and go to college and, you know, I'd run sound at some clubs and stuff like that. And I've actually had situations where, you know, a band, you know, ripped me apart about, you know, their monitor mix or something like that, you know, way, way back in the ancient days. And then a decade plus later, they're in my office asking me to sign them. You know, like you don't know when it's going to come full circle, but it's better just maybe you know, be polite and treat everybody with respect because at the end of the day it might circle round, you might get repaid for that kindness, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's funny. How many times has that happened where you remember but they don't? Oh, many times. That's so funny. That's like right out of a movie. Yeah, I didn't like I didn't the, end uh, up signing them just so you know. <laughs> I, I'm sure you didn't. That's uh getting treated like shit mm-hmm. sticks with people. Oh yeah. It definitely does. So what do you think – like, if you had to say, like, what your mission is out of this whole thing, like, because, you know, you you did turn your back on a career that seemed to have been working out well in the corporate world to take this massive risk, which has gone well for you. That I think it was a well-calculated risk. Obviously, you've definitely – proven yourself in the music industry game but that's quite the risk to go from that to to this so obviously you're guided by something deeper um, and I, I know you said that you have to have your creative fulfillment mm-hmm. but there's I feel like there's got to be something deeper so what do you know what your what your mission is overall like what you when this is all done what you want your legacy
2: to be Oh, absolutely. I have that dialed down. And for the course of, you know, about 10 years, I've been taking one step at a time kind of towards this direction. But, you know, the the big thing is, you know, when I started working at Century Media, I I did really enjoy working with, you know, developmental artists, bands that, you know, had the passion, they were hungry, they just wanted to, you know, follow their dreams and, you know, be successful. And I, I helped them navigate that. And I feel like, you know part of my the majority of my family they they work in the healthcare uh industry so they i've kind of been geared towards helping people but ended up in the music industry instead so i have this you know mentality that i just love helping these bands so from there you know after century i took a a role as president of artery recordings which is you know primarily a developmental uh, label which i found really exhilarating there's you know obviously legacy artists that are doing great on on that label, like uh, Attila, Chelsea, Grin, you know, I wrestled a bear once, but there's also a ton of developmental artists that I was fortunate to pick up and start, you know, developing. And then after Artery was acquired by Warner, I went to Uh, Outerloop as president, which was another developmental label. So I've kind of over the course of 10 years found my niche as I really enjoy helping bands, giving them advice. Um, I'm sure you and me are very related in that aspect, but I've even gone so far recently to, or not that recently, but over the course of two years, I've been developing a TV show that strictly helps bands you know, go from ground one to being successful. It's called Musician Rescue. I'm not sure if I told you about that.
1: I saw you post about that, and I definitely um, got keyed in because we have a show. It's not a TV show. It's uh It's actually only for highest tier subscribers, but it's called Mix Rescue. Okay. Which it's not the same thing at all. It's not, It's a. Uh, basically, our uh, students submit a. Uh, a mix of their own but like the actual session and then the guy who does nail the mix that month uh will open their session and kind of just like rescue it. Oh, nice. uh, not remix it mm. but they'll like be like uh oh, what did you do here that's uh here's a better way to do this. Yeah. Um so anyways but uh, just the it has the same initials and so i was like hmm interesting so i looked i looked at what you posted about it and i actually thought it was a very interesting idea
2: for a show yeah yeah it's it's i mean it's basically what i've been doing at labels for a long time you know taking a band that's jamming out of their practice spot and trying to get out there and i just throw them in the deep end it's kind of i would almost you know i would almost claim that it's like you know, extreme home makeover, but for a band, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of, you know, to, to loop back to your initial question, I've kind of just been chasing this, you know, almost high of, wow, this band, after working with them so much blew up and I had a part to play in that. I feel like that's a lot more, you know, meaningful to me than Hey, this band is already successful and I'm just kind of helping them, you know, do whatever they're asking me to, if that makes sense.
1: It makes perfect sense. Um, I definitely think that we're kindred spirits with that. So, because, you know, like at the first part of my career, I was a musician um, and it was all about my music. And uh, that was cool. uh, But I kind of felt empty inside too, doing that. Like I definitely had something I wanted to express, but I never felt great about it. And then I felt a step better. When I started producing full time, because I felt because it was like, you know, maybe you have ten bands a year that you're help, hopefully helping, helping do something better. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you do. But then every once in a while, you would help a band get to the next level of their career through your production, and that would be the best feeling ever. And then now, this thing with URM, where we're helping producers, you know quit their jobs and do this full time or, you know, guys that are already doing it full time, just helping them get better and just, you know, helping, you know, guy in a band who wants to do his own productions. Now he can learn how just like we're doing so much for so many people that it's the most fulfilled I've ever felt in my life um and i mean obviously there's a selfish reward to it but like i feel the most fulfilled when uh what i do has an impact on other people's lives and not in that it has an impact so they open their wallet and buy my song Mm -hmm. but impact in that their life is better as a result of of it
2: yeah that's it's great i mean we're in such a you know, unusual business where we can create something out of nothing and make people feel better about themselves or, you know, help somebody chase uh, happiness and acquire it, you know? So, I mean, that's in the perfect world. I would, I, I love when that kind of stuff works out, but it's just what other business can you really do that has those prerequisites, you know? It's
1: tough. I mean, and the thing that's interesting is that Traditionally in the music industry, it wasn't really about that anyway. So like to carve that niche out for yourself inside of music, which is kind of a selfish industry, um, very self-centered. You know, narcissism goes a long way in this industry um, to actually figure out a niche where you help people um, it's, it's kind of cool, and it's kind of different. Um, I mean, I think that there's other industries where it's possible, but sometimes it gets a little weird, like in the self-help world.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, and sometimes the thing about the self-help world that bugs me is that it's way too general. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like if – and I'm a fan of Tony Robbins and stuff, but, like, that kind of stuff, sometimes, like, it's so general that it's almost like horoscopes in that – like it doesn't re- it could apply to anything so which means it kind of applies to nothing. Yeah. The uh the thing that's really cool about doing something specifically in this industry is that we have specific results that, you know, they're either this person was able to quit their day job or they weren't. Yeah. You know, either they got this gig or they didn't. Either they're getting paid for this now or they're not. Yeah. And so like we can look at those things specifically. It's not just like People feel better about themselves there's like actual meat on uh, you know to like the the type of results that we can get for people so i think that that's great being able to actually point at real results i think
2: absolutely agree
1: so you think that your big mission is basically to help the artists you work with achieve their dreams is that like the way to if i was to sum it all down
2: yeah yeah absolutely i mean i i feel like my mission is to to help people you know and and I I do, you know, I I give it my all to help people and I educate them. I feel like education is such a big thing in the music industry because you can't really go to, you know, uh, community college and take a course and hey, how to make my band not get screwed over and be a success story, you know, so people. Especially in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So people like you and me, you know, we, we learn from trial and error and do it, doing it for a decade plus, you know, of getting hit with things. Oh, don't do that ever again to, oh, this is working, do this. So it's really great to, you know, create more of the the community aspect around the music. So it's the music community where I can teach a, a band what they need to do. And we would go after it as hard as we can. And after all that hard work, hopefully it pays off. But, you know, if it doesn't, at least we gave it you know, our best try, but that's pretty fulfilling to me. And I I think that that's, that's the job I've always wanted that I could be proud of, as opposed to, you know, going to the factory and, you know, stamping some, some, you know, car parts, you know, all day and then leaving and going home and drinking beer and going to sleep, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's interesting too, about the education aspect of this, of, You know, what we do or what you do is, uh, so there are other genres or other parts of music where you can go to school. And like, for instance, if you wanted to play in a wedding band, which is actually, you know, there's actually a pretty good career as far as being musician goes. If you can get into that line of work, uh, you can make a great living, um, You might even be able to make over a hundred grand a year doing that kind of stuff. Like those those gigs pay well, and um, if you get into a great cover band, uh, you can kill it. Or you get into the orchestra pit on Broadway or whatever, and you can go to school for that. Like you can get a degree, and you can uh, you can get the education you need to actually be able to do that for a living. Um, You know, you go to Berkeley. And you study that, you can do it. Mm-hmm. But for our world, our world is not recognized in schools. Yeah. Like when you go to production school, they don't teach you how to do metal. Metal is like the hardest style of music to produce, mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, they'll teach you country, they'll teach you pop, they'll teach you all that stuff, but they will not. Teach you metal, maybe some rock, yeah. but not much. And uh, no, it's not taken seriously. Like someone's got to do it, and I think it has to come from the people
2: who have done it. Well, I'll be straight about this too. Not not to be the devil's advocate, but you know, with me, you know, I, I have a master's degree, right? And within my career. I've never really had to show that to anybody. They more care about what you've kind of accomplished in, in your life. So, I mean, what I think is important is people like you and me educating people in these actual real world uh, scenarios. I mean, if if you want to go to Berkeley to be a, a wedding singer or, you know, do that stuff, I, I get it and it, it might help you, edu- you know, be educated to do that kind of thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, it almost feels like instead of giving your money to Berkeley you should get into like, you know, your nail the mix and other online capacities of YouTube and stuff and just start teaching yourself through educating yourself in a, you know, like hands-on type education. I I don't know. That's, that's kind of where I'm at with that.
1: Well, I mean, obviously I totally agree with you. I think that the traditional route doesn't apply to our world. It just, it just really doesn't So, and especially with the studio world, there used to be a lot more studios. So there used to be a lot more of a pathway where if you wanted to become a producer, you could intern, you could, you know, you could move your way up through running and interning to engineer, you know, all that stuff. There was a pathway and there were enough studios to where it was a legitimate path. But with the way that things have transformed to where there aren't that many studios anymore most of them are home-based operations and it's a lot more fragmented like there's not there's not that many places to really get that mentorship that used to be you know part of the deal yeah. like there isn't there isn't that so what we offer is the next best thing it's like yeah maybe you know now the mix is not the same thing as you know, working for Bob Rock for a year mm. or something, or, you know, or like, uh, you know, the machine was on Mix, and machine, uh, you know, Will Putney worked under him, uh, Josh Wilbur worked under him, Zach Servini worked under him, so obviously, getting to work under machine in the formative years of your career is a very, very good thing, mm. but most people are not going to get to work under machine, you know, because yeah. he only one or two people uh, every few years get to do that, but... At least through nail the mix, you get some insight into what that man's mind is capable of achieving. You know, like yeah. it's the next best thing, and uh, as opposed to just learning from one of them, you can learn from lots of them. So you know, I I suggest people do that and uh, and then work on their own to get better. So
2: yeah, I mean, talent is talent, you know, and I feel like if you know if you. If you go to college for it and get a degree, that's not going to stamp you as a talented individual. It's your actions no. after that. I mean, maybe instead of going, you know, racking up 80K and, and student loans, you know, buy a decent recording rig and educate yourself, you know, through the tools online. I think that that's probably the smartest way to go in our industry.
1: So do you regret your master's degree at all?
2: Yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, so, it, I mean, it was at the time everybody is supposed to go to college. And I'm sure it's opened up some doors, you know, in terms of my internship, which is great. I mean, you know, working for Barack Obama as your first internship isn't something that, you know, they would just give to anybody or, you know, no. you know if I didn't have a degree. But at the end of the day, it's like how many people interned somewhere else that they didn't get to do that kind of thing, you know. So after racking up that student loan, you know. Did it really help you or would you have done better just, you know, buckling down, getting an education online, you know, using those tools and then saving that money and putting it where you need it? Well, you tell me, do
1: you think that, I mean, you experienced it. You're the one who got the master's degree and, and then got these killer corporate gigs and then left it behind. Do you think that you would have been able to achieve the success you have in
2: music if you hadn't done that? I honestly feel like I could have, because okay, fair enough. You know, it's it's I, uh, ironic, but when I started working at Century Media, I didn't actually have to show them my degree. They never asked for it, right? And then ever since then, you know, I, I've never been asked for that or to to create really a formal resume. In that capacity, it's just you know after looking at what I accomplished and, you know, kind of the stuff I did and that I was motivated in doing stuff, nobody really cared if I went to college or not. You know, it's like, I, I, I wonder how many, you know, of the, the biggest, you know, producers that, that are out there, you know, especially back in the day, how many of them went to college, you know?
1: Uh, I can tell you from doing this podcast, mm-hmm. we're like, you know, we're the, this is in the 200 and teens episode-wise, yeah. yours is going to be, Talked to lots of people. And between that and Nail the Mix and everything, talked to lots of producers. I'd say that the majority don't go to college. Yeah. I mean, you obviously, you have some guys who graduated recording school and then... You know, like they graduated top of their class and then, then got immediately got a great gig and you know, they met they got the great gig through one of the professors and there are those guys yeah. but that's not the majority. That's actually those are outliers. And the thing is, if they were good enough at in school to impress their professor to the point where the professor would have Helped them out like that, they probably would have gotten that good anyways. Yeah. Because of that talent. Um, I'm just wondering if the knowledge that you got from those gigs, like the Barack Obama gig or the McDonald's gig, if that informed, if like, maybe it's not the degree itself that helped, but it, maybe your level of professionalism from working those gigs do you think that helped at all
2: maybe absolutely i if i could trade going to college for just being in the real world and getting hands on experience i would definitely do that i mean from from my aspect you know yeah i learned a lot of stuff in college but it hasn't really helped me you know in the real world i hate to say you know there's these lessons that aren't taught in books that are more valuable you know it's like as we progress in the music industry and the more bands i work with i'm learning things consistently i mean here i am 34 years old and I'm still learning new stuff every day. I mean, you, you, you know, back when I, I was in school, we were talking about CDs being a big format, you know, and now CDs aren't even a, a, a real thing. My computer doesn't even have a CD drive, like stuff's constantly changing. So I feel like in the real world, hands-on experiences, be it through internships or working at companies on the, the lower levels or higher levels or whatever, that's much more valuable than spending your time reading books that might be out of date already by the time that class is done.
1: Honestly, I can tell you that me as a boss, it's not that I look down on it. Like, actually, I'm very impressed that you got him with your background, but uh, you're not trying to come get an entry-level job with me. When people try to get entry-level jobs with me, whether it's an editor or a new customer service rep or whoever, whatever it is, whatever the situation may be, I am more skeptical of the people who have a lot more education because what it tells me is that maybe yeah they stuck it out and that's cool but I want I start to wonder if they were just putting off responsibility in the real world um for you know for the security of still being in school like that's I start asking myself that I start wondering are you going to be able to deal with the pressure uh of this because you don't have that much real world experience, you. I mean, you made it through school, but school's easy compared to the real world. Um, so,
2: and there's there's different types of you know different types of learners as, as well. Like, sorry to cut you off. That's okay. On uh, that, but. You know, certain people will go to college and they'll ace all their classes because they can read something and spit it back out on paper and they get great, you know, grades. And other people have to kind of experience and they figure it out in a more fluid capacity where, you know, you'll see somebody graduate with a, you know, a, a fancy degree and such and then be thrown in the real world and not be able to articulate how to take what they learn in a book and apply it into the real world. Whereas, People that might have got, you know, not the best grades, but understood the concept, will go out and kill it because they understand how to put the things into motion that they learn. So there's definitely two types of learners, and you know, I hate, I hate to dog college because it is difficult. People spend so much time and effort and money going to it. It just, for me, I I value, and maybe you'll you'll back me up on this. I value drive and talent more than a piece of paper.
1: Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before. And if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lama God, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, Super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. And um like even when I was producing full time and uh the recording schools would try to get me interns, like because they have people who work in those departments, that's their entire job, is to yeah get these kids internships those kids coming from the recording schools were typically bummers compared to uh, compared to the self-taught ones Um, The self-taught ones tended to to be the ones who got the gigs. The ones who came in with that recording school education tended to be a lot tougher to deal with. And I know, not just me, I know lots of producers who have been on this podcast who prefer somebody who might have less skills but have higher drive and a better personality and more talent because then they can, they'll teach, you know, they'll teach them. They're happy to teach them the skills part, but it's that, it's that other stuff that makes the bigger difference. And I can tell you also, uh, our guy who does our camera work for nail the mix, his name's Nick Pilata. Um, he also shoots our courses now. He's a 22 year old kid. Uh, we met him when he was 19, and he was Andrew Wade's intern. Uh, he knew nothing about cameras, or very little about camera work, when we took him on. And we decided that based on his personality and his talent and who he was and the work ethic, that if we just invested in him, uh, that he would become the perfect you know, technical operator for for what we do and a year and a half later it's proven to be a phenomenal investment like he's great at shooting these videos um it's not like we're shooting like you know some james cameron movie or something you know we're shooting educational content he's more he like he knows exactly how to do everything we need and he's he's come along perfectly and like i said he didn't know shit about it yeah uh, at the beginning, like, you invest in the person, not in the skills. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that based on based on that, like, I don't give a fuck what kind of degree someone has or not. I'm looking at yeah. who the person is. And I think that that is true pretty much across the music industry. People care about who you are, not your degree.
2: Yeah, 100%. I agree with that.
1: Nick's the perfect example of of that. Like, you can... Have zero skills in something, but if you prove yourself you know as a person to the people who cut the checks, you'll get a shot. Um, people will give you the opportunity to learn yeah it's awesome i I love that by the way, I love that it's that way. I think that that's one of the coolest things actually about the music industry is that you can walk into a situation with without the skills and if you have the right stuff as a human, you you'll probably get the opportunity.
2: Yeah, but if if I ever end up in a hospital or have to get surgery, oh, well, that's yeah. a different well, story. Yeah. Please have that piece of paper ready. I,
1: well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Did you ever see that uh, Zach Galifianakis uh, between two ferns, where he uh, <laughs> he uh, he said that he was in a program called Doctors Without Diplomas. You know, like,
0: oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was hilarious, oh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously if you, you know, you want your pilot on the plane mm-hmm. to, uh, have completed all the technical education <laughs> required yeah. for that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with art. We're not dealing with, uh, saving people's lives. So,
2: yeah. Or are we?
1: <laughs> well, you know, um, not directly like, you know, mm-hmm. doing a triple bypass, but I, I, Do you think that in some ways art does save lives for sure? Uh, At least that's what people say.
2: I mean, it's like Uber and Lyft drivers. How many people have they saved? You can't really prove it, you know? It's like how many drug drivers were taken off the street. Like how many people, you know, were saved through music or lyrics and ended up not doing something they, you know, regretted?
1: The amount of times that, uh, you know, members of bands get told that their music saved somebody. Like mm-hmm. I, I, when people say that, I'm gonna take them. I'm mm. gonna believe that what they're saying is true. I don't think that people mm. will just say, "Your music saved my life," uh, just to say it. Like, yeah. Why? Why would they? Um. So, all right, switching gears a little. I'm wondering, you as a, as a boss, who, mm. uh does cut checks, you know, you work with lots of bands who have to go to the studio. So you've worked with lots of producers who, you know, and you're counting on these producers to, you know, to handle whatever, you know, whatever the band throws at them and give you something that you can then sell. What is it that you're looking for in a producer? And what is it that lets you feel confident to
2: take a chance on a new one? Yeah that's that's a great question. Um so for me on the the mechan- you know the more mechanical business side of things like what I'm always looking for and these are the two big things for me is you know obviously stability. Hardly anybody knows how digital setups for album releases work, you know how and you know intense they are in terms of making pitches for Spotify or having meetings over at SiriusXM or you know all of this stuff that has to play into, you know, a, a simple single release, you know, even just a standalone, there's so much stuff. So one big thing for me with a producer is just to have some stability and deliver on deadlines. There's something really hard from the label side, uh, to deal with, which is a producer that kind of says, Hey, mix is coming this Friday. You're going to have it for, for the mastering plant, the whole nine. And then, you know, two and a half, three weeks go by. Cause they squeezed another, another, you know, uh project in or something like that. And then before you know it, all the pitches on the label side are kind of null and void because you have to shift it to two months later because of something like that. So for me, when I start working with a producer that's on the point, you know, on the ball, uh, delivers what they say they're gonna deliver, that's something that I really enjoy working with. As as well as, you know, on the the musical side for me, you know, one of the biggest parts of uh You know, a song's success or an album is just really heavy hitting good hooks, you know, or choruses. So what I I like to do is work with engineers that do know how to get the most out of, you know, a a vocalist and have them deliver something that'll that'll be not just memorable, but also impact people to continue listening to that single.
1: So would you say that like having some songwriting ability, is that kind of what you mean that Mm -hmm. they can help fill in the fill in the weaknesses and, you know, like with hooks and really whatever's needed. But Mm. would you say that that translates as good songwriting
2: ability? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the biggest battle too for me is, you know, when you have a band of five, six, or four people and you throw them together, each person is a little biased towards what they think the song needs. You know, so what happens is the guitarist thinks that it needs, you know, a big solo portion and the vocalist thinks that his vocals need to be louder, or, you know, different stuff like that. So for me, having an engineer slash producer who, you know, can sit there and be kind of the voice of reason, kind of a mediator, if you will, has been truly invaluable because, you know, the songs come out better as a whole to me, as opposed to the bands there. Somebody hits record and just lets them kind of battle it out and create this, uh, camel of a a situation. So I've always found that that's just been productive and uh, helped me out uh, create better products, at least on my side.
1: And how do you know, like, I guess when you're first entering into a relationship with a producer, do you have any like methods for finding out if you think that this person's gonna be this way or like what makes you feel confident in advance about going with someone you've never hired before?
2: I think the biggest thing is word of mouth. I mean, none of this stuff can be really, you know, uh, 100% figured out ahead of time. A lot of times you just kind of have to roll the dice and go with who the band wants to go with or who we're thinking and and see what happens. But I will say this, if if it works out great, usually you end up sending that person additional you know, projects in the future and you have a great relationship. If it's just terrible and doesn't work out, you tend to not want to trust that individual again. So I would say though, that word of mouth is probably the best way to get clients, not even just on the audio side, like me as a videographer on the side, you know, doing that stuff. I also get tons of clients based just strictly on people saying, dude, this guy's on the level, did great work. He comes through and he's professional. And that goes a long way. I mean, if you do that 10 years, you know, straight, you're going to have a lot more clients than, you know, burning people and, you know, not taking it seriously or something in that matter. Burning people never, never goes well. And
1: I imagine that if you have a long track record with somebody, uh, if there does happen to be one record, that's a nightmare uh, and it really isn't the producer's fault, you're going to be that much more inclined to believe them.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. If you have, it's, you know, the music industry seems so big and vast, but it is a small family. You know, we all know each other and, when something you know if you have a few albums that you know are are doing great and you guys work together and one just is kind of a fluke it could have been the band's fault or some circumstance you you never know you know for me at least i would probably just give the person the benefit of the doubt and continue working together because not only of loyalty but the long history of working together and doing great successful projects
1: at what point i guess um without throwing anyone under the bus but like at Mm -hmm. what point Does it cross over into, all right, this dude's too much drama, and versus, man, this band is impossible. Like, I'm giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. Where's that line for you, or is it case by case?
2: It really is case by case, but there are situations that arise where you just have to, you know, either cut ties because it's just not productive anymore, or you need to try to repair it through more drastic means without half measures. Um, so for me, you know, I'm, I'm very accepting and I I like to listen to, you know, different perspectives to kind of understand the whole scenario. But at certain times, like some things just don't work, you know, and, for you to waste your time and and money and 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 uh, energy on on something that's just you know inflexible isn't gonna end well.
1: No, no, it's it's definitely not in terms of uh, reliability. I guess in terms of hierarchy, of what's yeah. more important to you. And I realize that it's not life isn't usually about these extremes. But if you had to choose somebody who was 100%. Perfect at audio production, like best productions you've ever heard. But was constantly late, and you know, kind of a diva. Uh, just like you know, the all the other stuff was tough to deal with. Versus someone who was ninety percent great at audio productions, but all the other stuff was totally cool. Like everything's always on time. They're always easy to deal with. The bands always have a good time. You know, all the all that
2: stuff is great. Which one would you rather go with? I would go with your second uh, analogy. I, I essentially would take the 90% person because, you know, in the long run, there's too much stuff to risk um, in, in the grand scheme of things on at least the label side, as well as the musician's career to really have it hinge on any type of diva, you know, attitude. It's It's kind of difficult, you know, when... We're in an industry where, yes, it is work, it's a job, but also some people have egos and might, you know, throw stuff under the bus based on vanity. That kind of stuff is too much to deal with, especially with so much money, uh, such a, a big career on the line, um, and mentally <laughs> having to deal with that is not even worth it at all as well. So,
1: Well, I'm glad you said that because one thing that we always tell our students is that, look, you definitely need to try to be as badass as you possibly can be at audio. But if you think that just being badass at audio is enough, you're totally wrong. And that there's that extra 25% of the day that you could sit in your room and work on audio or you could work on networking and your personalities and social skills and business skills, you should work on that stuff because that stuff is going to be what makes or breaks your career at the end of the day. Like, it's assumed that you're a badass at audio, but you don't need to be the best of all time to be gainfully employed and regularly gainfully employed. It, these other skills are equally as important, and they get they get overlooked a lot. And I think a lot of people get really good at music or audio and somehow they feel like that's enough. Oh, yeah. And it's
2: not. It's it's also one one important thing I'd like to bring up, and this this kind of refers back to the college stuff uh, as well. But you know, if you're a college graduate and have a degree, or if you're an engineer that thinks you're super hot shit, like. You know entitlement is something that is really hard to deal with. Got it. What a turnoff. Totally. It's it's not just a turnoff but it also kind of stunts your growth mentally because if if you're, you know, arrogant or you think you're you're now entitled to a job and you don't want to work as hard or if you're a big producer and you say, "Hey, I'm I'm hot shit. I know everything and nobody else and knows any better than me." You know, you're not going to learn anymore. You're just going to kind of shut down and think that you have it. Right. So I feel like that stuff or that mentality is, is, yeah, not only a a big turnoff, but it's also something that is going to be, you know, uh, very destructive to any anyone's career. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I totally, totally agree. And, you know, it's interesting that the best musicians I know, I know some great ones, Mm -hmm. uh, the best musicians I know, you know, they could be 45 years old and they're still Mm -hmm. getting lessons and they still kind of think they suck and they still, you know, are actively chasing getting better. Yeah. Like they never think they know everything. It's usually, usually that I think I know everything attitude comes from people that aren't that great. Yeah. (laughs) Funny, funny enough how that works. Um, We've got some questions here from our listeners that I want to, Want to ask you? Um, okay. We've got some good ones. Um, I have some more stuff I want to talk about, but kind of like some of the stuff's topical, so I figure may as well just ask it while we're kind of on this topic. So this one we already kind of covered, but I'm just wondering, you know, if there's any, if there's any more to this. But Isaiah Prather, who by the way is one of our youngest students, he's 17, and but he's okay. already going to college while he's in high school. And he's making a living off of recording and mixing already. So well, that's great. Yeah. And I believe he's also wins a track or something. So kinda kinda doing great. But uh, he's wondering, hey Shan, I'm wondering about what labels look for in engineers and what the best ways to get those jobs are. Thanks. And so I I'm gonna just butt in though before you answer that yeah. and say that he's asking from the perspective of someone who does not have any name whatsoever in the industry. Yeah. He's a young kid who, like, has a dream of getting into the industry. So there is going to be no word of mouth about him. Like Mike Mowry not going to tell you, "Yeah, I worked with him. He's cool." Like, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, he's nowhere right now. So from that perspective, like from someone in his position, what, what would you say labels? Are looking for an engineer's how
2: should he go about getting those jobs interesting enough you know everyone starts from that aspect so I wouldn't be freaked out about it I would take this this opportunity to almost you know Uh, continue on like this is your internship where what i would do is honestly i would start recording smaller bands and then you know next thing you know is you do great work you know even if you don't like the band or they're small you still give it your all and it it makes a great record what's going to inevitably happen is a label is going to try out you know an engineer like that for something smaller that's less risk i mean obviously You know, I'm not going to say, hey, I got this band Metallica. Do you want to do their record? I've never heard your stuff or work together. So, (laughs) you know, it's just too much of a risk. So from a label standpoint, you know, if it's a newer band or something, you know, a little less risky, they're going to give you that opportunity. You know, I've done it a million times where I try out new engineers and producers where I'm like, "Okay, this band, you know, wants to work with this guy or he's talking to us and it's not too expensive and his stuff sounds good so far. Let's try it out. And then from there you know, that's where your relationship starts to you know blossom, where next thing you know, they're like, hey, we have a moderate band, a, a bit bigger. You did such a great job on that album. You know, that last album for the smaller band, it, w- it sounded great. You were very professional. Let's try you out with this, this group. So you just kind of have to do that. I mean, it's not going to happen overnight, but a label will give you a chance inevitably, as long as you keep doing really great work, trying hard. And then, you know, also you do want to kind of network and get yourself out there and kind of be educated on what bands are getting signed or who's looking to do new records, because you never know. I mean, it's, it's really just, you need one foot in the door. And then if you have the talent and you work hard, it really just goes from there. I mean, I, I went, when I started doing videos for the first time, I think I directed, you know, my own band's video and the budget was like $500. And then, you know, most recently I just directed a new music video for John Mellencamp, you know, for a mainstream record. Um which more than five hundred dollars. Yeah, definitely. Five hundred and one dollars. No, I was about joking. to say five hundred and twenty-five dollars. <laughs> exactly. So I made <laughs> twenty-five extra dollars. Not joking.
1: Well that that's a great answer. Um here's a question from Brandon Morris. And uh by the way, some of these questions uh I'm asking them because there may be a misunderstanding on how this all works. Like Okay. So and I think so I want to address some of these. The way this is worded makes me think that he doesn't totally understand how studio label producer relationships work, mm-hmm. but at the same time I think the wording might be weird. So here's a question from Brendan Morris. Uh, how should engineers go about finding appropriate labels for their studio size and what they'll be looking for and also what's the best way to attempt to contact a label.
2: Okay. Um, I, I think I understand what you're saying. So, I mean, here's, here's the thing, your studio size, I don't think matters. I mean, obviously if, if you're recording out of your bedroom, you know, you probably want to get a bigger sp- space. that's a, a little bit more professional. It doesn't need to be too crazy, but honestly, you know, studio space isn't that huge to a label to a specific point. I mean, I've, I've had artists where they record in a bedroom and create some really great stuff. You know, they don't have to go into a, you know, multi-million dollar studio. Um, it's just the way things are now. Um, so, I mean, if you're starting on the kind of the ground one basis, um, I would just have a moderate studio. I wouldn't let that, you know, phase you from going after clients. You know, there's a, a very a very great quote that one of my mentors told me a long time ago, and it's something that I've always... Listened to and had in the back of my mind for 10 years plus. And the saying always went ready, fire, aim. Whereas, you know, the, the point being yep. is just yep. get it ready, get it off the ground, and then steer the ship, you know, as opposed to trying to aim and figure out, you know, where you want to go and then pull the trigger. Just, just get it off the ground and then figure it out. Um, for reaching out to an artist or reaching out to a label, I would actually encourage you to maybe start reaching out to managers. I feel like the majority of managers have a lot more sway towards the label in terms of, hey, the band really wants to go with this guy they've been talking to. And then me as a label would be like, okay, you know what? I'll delegate to you and we'll do this. Or I can put my foot down and say, you know, no, they're not going to do it. They're going to go to this guy because we have a relationship and it works. So also, you know, I wouldn't reach out direct to labels as much as you start developing relationships with maybe some managers. Yeah, yeah. Great.
1: Thank you. Um, Here's one from Matt Heap, which is, how does a band stick out from the 1,584,335,154 applications a label gets? How do they get the right people to hear their music?
2: Oh my gosh, that's a lot of bands.
1: I think that he just typed in random numbers and didn't think that I was actually going to read the number off, but it was still a number I could understand.
2: Or he went and just counted every band on the internet. It could be. (laughs) That's true. You're hired. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, that's the name of the game. I mean, from a label standpoint, I'm looking for something that will stand out. You know, it's like, you see this formulaic approach from older labels where, you know, Blink-182 came out and it was a three-piece punk band that was working. And then they signed, you know, all these other three-piece bands and try to make those work too. Or, you know, the boy bands and there's all these replicas and stuff. For me and many of my counterparts at different labels, you know, we believe in something that, A, stands out and is new. I mean, look at 21 Pilots, right? God, they're so good. You'd be so surprised how many times... Somebody is passed on signing 21 Pilots and then they blew up and they regret it because it was something fresh, it was different, you know, and people really appreciated it. So people want to find that next 21 Pilots. So standing out, I mean, it could be a visual approach to things. And granted, I'm not saying make garbage music and just look cool, you know, you want best of both worlds, but you could have a, a really cool gimmick or look. I mean, look at Ghost. That's a perfect example of somebody that came from an artistic side, built a very visual aspect and just killed it. I Obviously, Ghost is probably one of the contenders of biggest bands of, you know, 2018, I would say, personally. They're a lot bigger than I realized. Oh, yeah. They're really big. And I mean, if they were just a handful of guys just looking regular in shirts and playing music, you think it would be that successful? No,
1: no, it all goes together. But but I do think there's a flip side, um, which is sometimes local bands put too much into their image and yeah. it kind of comes off like a joke oh yeah like they look like that local band that's trying too hard like they look like that local band that that makes their girlfriends wear the crew shirt um yeah. i feel like there's a fine line which is you know where the where the art and skill comes in but there's a fine line to i think having an image appropriate for your size too
2: yeah. Oh, it, it, it has to be done properly. And I mean, I'm sure there's been a, a million bands that try to pull off the Black Veil Bride's look and, you know, Slipknot and it just didn't work. You know, Yeah. you just have to be unique. You have to come up with an idea that hasn't been done or something that just truly comes together and bakes this cake of, you know, just... uh God, I, I hate that I just use a cake analogy. We don't work in the food, food <laughs> industry, you know. I should use a music metaphor, but um, it's just something that works, you know. And from, from my aspect, kind of looping back to your, your question is, a band needs to have something special, either a look and their music sounds great or a new approach that hasn't been done because, you know, let's face it, nobody wants to hear, you know, more cookie cutter things that are, are the same as stuff that people are already getting tired of no uh I know i I definitely
1: don't want to, so you know that the local band who they they have read lots of music industry books mm-hmm. and so they you know they go to an expensive studio, they get a publicist, they get a local level manager, like they get all these things that they think are gonna make them seem legit that they think are going to matter. Um, hmm. But, you know, personally, I don't think any of that stuff really matters like before you're ready for it. But uh, yeah, what would you say to those bands who like invest a lot of money or like get into these business relationships while they're still local? Uh, what do you, do you, I mean, do you think that that's okay or do you think they should be, reprioritizing like what do you think about that whole phenomenon because i've seen quite a few
2: yeah it's kind of your fake it till you make it type thing yes kind of so i mean essentially what i what i would tell you is that i mean just thinking about it like a publicist is important and crucial to any release or band. um but the big thing is they're only as good as the ammunition that they have right so if there's a local band and they're putting out really unique content like crazy stuff you know that's a publicist you know that's capable of doing big things can use they're going to open up some doors for you i mean its perf- perfect example is uh, oh man what was that okay go do you remember that band
1: oh yeah okay go they made the phenomenal youtube videos
2: yeah so they you know if if you guys haven't seen it it's a band and they took four treadmills And they just made like a little choreography thing on a cheap camera that probably cost them 20 bucks to film and the thing was used by whoever their publicist was at the time and ended up blowing the band up because you know as a publicist you have to get the attention of you know cultivators of these magazines the editors or the content creators and you know for for you as a publicist to approach a a magazine and say hey i got a band that's playing music about a breakup and a video is a girl crying and they are arguing nobody's going to care because, you know, their content is created for the strict purpose of getting click through rates. You know, if somebody sees that on their timelines, nobody's going to click through to it. But hey, check out this band. They used four treadmills and did some crazy choreography. It's the weirdest thing ever. People are going to click through and they're going to make money as a magazine. So it's kind of this duality where people think magazines are doing it for fun or to help. You know, and some are. I'm sure I'm not talking poorly on magazines. I work with them every day, but you know, what they really are looking for is unique stuff that people are going to want to watch. So you as a band, you know, if you do have a publicist, you know, make sure you have something to give them to make the money worth it. You know, if, if you're sending them a video or two to find a premiere on something it's you know that they might land or not it's not worth it but looping back
1: no i want to hear i want to hear more about this because i feel very strongly about this like my because like you know we're like we're talking about earlier like we want to help people we want to help people that's what we do and so when i see bands fucking up like this and spending thousands and all that it it like it hurts me so i'd like to have my knowledgeable friends come on and lay the truth down
2: yeah. I make sure when I have a publicist, it's needed, you know, I, I wouldn't spend money on publicists for months and months and months without having the content or the, the, the power ammunition for them to utilize. Because at that point you're just throwing money away. But I would like to bring up an example that I had created back in, uh, when was it? I, think I want to say three years ago, I invented a band called Pug Topsy. Have you, do you remember that? <laughs>
1: no, but it's great. <laughs>
2: So I, I created this band. You know, it, it was loosely based on, a, you remember, Caninus? It was like a yeah, of course, black and metal band with two pit bulls. All-time classic. Yeah, I had this idea of doing that with a pug, right? And I, I know somebody has done that again recently, so, you know, maybe that was their idea as well, or they ripped me off, who cares, doesn't matter, but... Um,
1: Shandan,
2: you owe Shan Dan, But I had this idea for April Fool's Day, I wanted to create a fake band that was metal and it was fronted by a pug like the dog. And I did it and I was hyping up this April 1st release date, you know, in an attempt to uh, draw up momentum and make people think, oh, who is it? Is it Metallica or, you know, Black Dolim or, you know, people were speculating. April 1st, I drop a, a brutal metal music video with the pug and it's just so stupid. But I have a publicist do a blast about it. It ends up getting picked up by TMZ. It gets picked up by at least a dozen radio stations. It's on Revolver. It's on Alternative Press. It just gets picked up by all of these publications because it was such a unique creative spin on something that if they posted it, people would click through and go to their magazines and check out the story. But long story short, you know, I used my publicist and the momentum of this angle to raise, uh, I believe it was $8,000 off of uh, one shirt on Merch Now, and we donated all of that to an uh, animal charity. That's awesome. It was actually for a great cause, but you know that just underlines kind of exactly the ammo you need. It needs to be something to kick in that door because we may think our music and our standard music video is good enough, but it's just maybe you need to get a little bit more thrifty and creative about how you want to present yourself in a visual aspect. Well, the
1: Publicist is not going to create your story for you. And True. by expecting them to, it's asking them to do something that's not really part of the job description. Yeah. First of all, I think that it's kind of, it's ignorant. And it's also very selfish and just out of touch with reality to think that another human being is going to be able to invent your story for you. Like yeah. that's it that's not how life works. Like only you can invent your own story and True. uh then you bring in other people to help publicize it for you. <laughs> but if you don't come in with the like, yeah, you use the word ammunition. I think that's a perfect word um for it. Like if you don't come in with that, uh you're asking this person who doesn't know you Or maybe they know you a little, but this person who is not you, uh, who is not part of your artistic creation, who's, you know, they have a very specific job of, of pitching stories to media outlets. You're asking this person whose job is to pitch stories to then create your story. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. How can they? That's not, they're not part of your, uh, yeah you know, they're not part of your like artistic collective or like whatever it is like your project like they're it's not their story uh, yeah. they you know if your story's good, they can help you get the story coverage but expecting them to create it that goes back to that entitlement you talked mm. about earlier, which I think that that's kind of an entitled thing to to it's just it's just coolest expecting that it's kind of yeah. like when people who don't understand how a manager works um, mm-hmm. and when they expect the wrong things out of a manager, for instance. That's what it feels like to me. So like I think another example of, of where local bands go real wrong with this is by working, trying to find management way too early. Yeah, Because basically, the only managers that will work with you that early um, are not the kind of managers who can really do anything for your career. And a manager, uh I mean, managers do get opportunities for bands, but the band has to give the manager ammunition. Yeah. To use your word. They have to give the, the manager ammunition to work with. Like the manager's not gonna create that for you.
2: Yeah. And it's not not only that. I mean, all in, in the course of my career, the amount of emails and submissions I've I've had for demos or bands is is astronomical, but I love listening to these, you know, the albums, demos, and I go through all of them, but a huge chunk of them, you know, is a situation where, you know, they haven't played a show or, you know, they are online and haven't really promoted it or something like that. And they ask me to just get them on a big tour and make them famous. And
1: just like that, just like, you know, just make them famous, you know?
2: Yeah. And it just doesn't work that way. I mean, the best thing for a band is to continue on, create a product that they're proud of, that they know people will really enjoy and listen to and start promoting it regardless if they have a publicist, a manager, or anything like that. Because I guarantee if you have something special and you guys are all working hard and, and getting fans and building momentum, you're going to hit a precipice where labels and managers come and start talking to you as as opposed to you begging them to give you a chance. And maybe, you know, they they take advantage of you because they know you're desperate or something like that. It's just a position where too many bands are expecting instant success without working for it, and then the other half of them are actually working super hard and starting to see the momentum. And I I guarantee if that's the approach you take, where you're just like, let's buckle down, work hard, and start to get fans, you know, um, that's going to be much more productive for your career in the long run. I totally, totally
1: agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, I guess it comes down to booking agents too. Uh, lots of times these bands will try to get a booking agent and it's like look that's not just cuz you got a booking agent and you're a local band does not mean that you're going to get cool tours and uh there the only kinds of real tours that are going to come your way uh from that is going to be stuff that you don't want to do like buying on to like buying on to a a legacy band that is just trying to pay their bills. Yeah. So they'll let you play first of five out of like four other local bands that are paying their bills. Mm. Uh, You know, that's not, that's not good. That's not really going to do much for
2: you. Yeah. I mean, that, that in itself, it's, you know, all about ticket sales. You know, like I've seen bands at least back in the heyday, you know, when I was in bands and, and such where we would play, you know, weekend shows and we expand to a week long and, and our markets and we would get those really bolstered up and start being able to actually draw. And then from there you had momentum. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that you know, promoters and bands look at a a website called Polestar Pro, which actually tracks the majority of ticket sales based around any specific artist. So, you know, for instance, let's say we see a tour for under oath pop up, you know, on, on that inner circle of the industry where they're you know trying to find a package of bands to be on it. If you don't pull a specific amount of tickets, you know, you're most likely not going to be considered for that kind of tour. So building from the ground up and actually having a, a, a tangible, fan base that you can utilize to to propel yourself into uh, tours with people that have the same kind of fan base um, is going to be a lot more successful than you trying to hemorrhage money. I mean, it's been done, you know, working at a label for, or, you know, handful of labels for the course of a decade. I've seen a lot of money spent on tours just to get somebody without any draw in. So you can do it that way. But I mean, in the, in the long run, it's just not going to be as successful as, building something and having a tangible fan base to rely on.
1: I'm sure that every once in a while, uh, you know, you could spend a bunch of money to get somebody with no draw some opportunities. And out of all the times that you do that, one out of X amount, you know, one in 10 or one in seven, I don't know what the number is, but one out of all those times that you do that, it will work out and some momentum will build. But I'm sure, because I've seen it too, that most of the times that that's done, it fails. Oh, yeah. Because there's a reason for why that band doesn't have a pull. It's because they're not ready for those opportunities yet. They haven't graduated to that point. There's They're not ready. So putting buying them into that situation isn't going to suddenly make them ready. It's not going to yeah. make them a good enough band. You know, every once in a while, there's a band that's awesome who just for some reason, hasn't been recognized yet. But I don't think that's usually the case. I think usually the case yeah. is the bands are not ready for the opportunities. And yeah. so the market hasn't responded.
2: Yeah. And one tip, you know, this is related and probably going to help some of you guys out is, you know, what what I've encouraged people to do is, you know, if, if you're hitting a situation and some buy-on and you have to spend X amount of dollars, like, I get it. It might be good for your resume and stuff like that. But in, in a uh, almost trade-off, what I've tried to do is maybe pivot to, hey, instead of paying this straight out flat cash type thing, we're going to create a comprehensive marketing timeline and deck based around this tour. So if you bring us along, we're going to spend this amount of money on Facebook ads and stuff like that that's you know, is going to help draw more people. And that's kind of a more beneficial thing because the ads, you know, you are spending money. It's helping the tour out, but it's also helping your band out from a marketing capacity because you can piggyback your message as in our new singles out, we're on tour. Here's the dates and ticket links. You know, you can kind of use that. So that's a situation that might be feasible both for the legacy artists and you and actually benefit a bit more than here's a check, a blank check. And, you know, we're going to do this one tour and it's all going to, make you know, work out and we're going to be huge after it.
1: Yeah, well, that's kind of what you just suggested is how I've always looked at life, which is whatever opportunity you get, if you actually approach it with the mindset of, I'm going to milk this for everything it's worth. I'm going to do every single thing I can to make this as big as I can, like get every ounce of value out of it. Well, people will go a lot further, I think, if they uh, approach life that way. Yeah. Um So here's a question from Noah Vipassiana, which is, would a label legitimately consider someone for a test mix if they only had three tracks in their portfolio? That's an arbitrary number he just picked. Uh, So only three tracks in their portfolio, but each song was totally slamming.
2: Um, I mean, maybe it'd be a little more difficult. For me, the name of the game is more album-driven or EP-driven. So usually when, you know, opportunity presents itself, I want, you know, all five songs to be very, you know, similar or recorded at the same time and mixed and such. But there might be, you know, situations where I need to remix a single or, d- or do something like that and would just give people, you know, a chance to do that. But I honestly would go after full albums. It's just, you know, it's, it's more convenient for a label to do that as opposed to a single by single basis.
1: Mm hmm. And so same person was wondering, so would a label rather see a portfolio where each song was displayed via its own standalone Vimeo video or any video site with like a custom graphic and some animation over the regular website music player? Or does that not really have much influence in favor of someone who's trying to get a chance at a test mix?
2: Yeah, I mean, that that doesn't that doesn't uh, bother me too much. I mean, I honestly would just love to see a discography, you know, if it's if it's a uh, handful of local bands or what it is. But, you know, if somebody has only done some singles, it's not going to move the needle for me, at least, you know, uh, as, as much as, hey, I've worked on this album, this album, this album check it out you know it's it's something more tangible so what i would encourage you to do is start to record eps or full albums for for artists because that's pretty substantial and then you know build a resume around that um because not only does it show you've been doing this for a while and you're capable of handling full you know full albums and such but it's also organized and, and i can check out uh different dimensions of what your work entails based on what genres you recorded
1: Okay, so we have a few questions here, like from Gerald Prado, Nolan Belladone, Noah Vipassiana asked this as well, uh, and a few more were kind of asking, I'm just addressing you guys, kind of asking, uh, Martin Pauly was also asking about tips for contacting a label, and I just want you guys to know that we already covered this in the question for, that Isaiah Prather asked at the beginning, and also... Um, the question from Brandon Morris. So like we already covered that. So just cause I didn't ask your question is because the topic was already covered, but here's one and we'll close it out with this one. This one wasn't covered yet, but uh, this is from Dallin Perkins, which is how does the whole thing work between the engineer and label? Like who's paying who, how much, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Dallin doesn't really, if he's asking how much, than never done this before, so just kind of assuming he's kind of close to the whole, to that whole dynamic between labels and engineers.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it, it's re- really a case by case situation. You know, certain bands will have bigger budgets depending upon what their sales are going to be. You know, if a band is going to sell a hundred thousand records, you know, you you have more money to work with. It's it's pretty straightforward. With smaller bands, you know, it's more like oh well, we don't have that big of a You know, budget because we don't know how many CDs it's going to sell. At the end of the day, we want to at least recoup what we spent into a band back. That's actually a win for me. Um, But it really just depends what your, I guess, uh, status is as an engineer. I mean, if you're starting out, you might have to do some gigs for a lot cheaper. I mean, it's always at least the majority of people I work with, engineer-wise, it's kind of a a trek you know, uh, a cost per track type thing where, you know, let's say it's like a smaller engineer trying to, you know, get their hands dirty a little bit. It could be, oh, let's do $500 a track, you know, test it out. Or, you know, you could get up upwards of, you know, if, if you're a really big engineer, you could really just, you know, negotiate whatever rate you want as well as what's called point. So in terms of, your overall cost of an actual, like to record a single could be, let's just, I'm just spitballing, two grand per single, and then you could negotiate five points, so 5% of what the album makes, you know, in royalties. So there's different ways you can go about doing it, but it is just very wild, wild west in terms of negotiation. It really comes out to, you know, your uh, portfolio. Uh, what you have to bring to the table, and just the overall budget of the band. I mean, you know, if, if the band is just smaller, you know, they're they're not going to have as much cash. But what happens in the the relationship between the label and the engineer is you essentially invoice the label and we pay the bills. So it's basically a glorified bank just with some uh, guidance.
1: Every once in a while, I've seen these deals where the band is in control of the budget. So the band pays it, but that's not common in my experience. Normally, it's normally you invoice the label and they pay.
2: Totally. I mean, I've seen bands, you know, I've I've seen many bands where, you know, they're at a level where the labels like, hey, here's X thousands of dollars, make all this stuff work, you know, in terms of your recordings, your video, all the stuff. And it always fails miserably. I mean, I'm sure it might have worked decent for some people, but you know the band goes over budget in the recording and they're like oh no we only have $200 for the music video we didn't realize it was so expensive oh wait a publicist what's that you know so a lot of times the label is just kind of maps out here's what you got budget wise here's what you know we can afford on this side like this is your overall marketing plan for the next year and a half this is how much money we have this is the markets we're going after so that is kind of the goal. the The role of of the label is to map it out, organize so the musician could be a musician, get creative, and make sure that everything gets paid for and covered.
1: Yeah, I, I've always wondered why they would put that in the musician's hands because that's just asking. <laughs> it's just asking for trouble. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's not wise. Um Well, Shandan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Uh We should do it again sometime. It's killer that we finally got the chance to do this and work
2: together absolutely it's it's been great talking um thanks for having me on yeah man anytime
0: the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by hairball audio for nearly a decade hairball audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio, do-it-yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Shure, legendary microphones, cutting-edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones, Shure the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to sure.com. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.